confronting the challenges to Northern Ireland's economy. A Queen's University Belfast webinar with Matthew O'Toole, MLA, hosted by Professor Richard English. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this In Conversation event hosted by Queen's University Belfast on the subject of confronting the challenges to Northern Ireland's economy. A great pleasure to welcome you all to the event, to thank my colleagues in public engagement at Queen's for organising it, and to introduce our special guest today, Matthew O'Toole, MLA. Matthew is an SDLP politician who served as MLA for the Belfast South constituency in the Northern Ireland Assembly since January 2020. He was previously Chief Press Officer for Europe at 10 Downing Street between 2015 and 2017. As a civil servant, he helped to coordinate the UK government communications effort during the EU referendum campaign and its aftermath through to the beginning of the formal Brexit negotiations. Prior to this, he served as economic spokesperson and head of strategic communications at the UK Treasury. He began his career as a journalist and he's written on politics and Brexit for, among others, the Irish Times, the Financial Times, The Guardian and Politico. Matthew, it's great that you can join us today. Matthew O'Toole will first give a talk about confronting the challenges to Northern Ireland's economy, confronting the challenges to Northern Ireland's economy. Then there'll be an opportunity for questions directed to Matthew. Please submit those through the question and answer function that you'll see on your screens, and I'll try and get through as many of them as possible and give Matthew a chance to respond. As you all know, the event is to be recorded in order that it can be accessed afterwards. So now to speak on the subject of confronting the challenges to Northern Ireland's economy, it's a real pleasure to hand over to Matthew O'Toole, MLA. Thank you um, very much, Richard, and thanks to, um, to Queen's for hosting this event and, um, and, and, and having me here. It's, it's a real privilege. I should also thank up front both Michal Martin and Rishi Sunak, who have um, uh, been my warm-up acts uh, today. Um, they've certainly preempted some of what I was going to say. So if I have to hastily amend my remarks based on, based on what they've said, um, people will forgive me. And um, one of the great privileges of representing South Belfast is that it represents uh, this world-class university, Queen's, uh, that has served not just as an educational institution, uh, but a profoundly important social, cultural, uh, and economic actor in this part of the world. Um, Queen's has been a meeting point and melting pot for ideas and discussion, even at the most difficult of times. And so it remains. In the last few years of Brexit and political melees in Northern Ireland, this institution has often carried the torch for reasoned debate and discussion and diversity of perspective. It was a Queen's historian, A.T.Q. Stewart, who famously characterised Ulster's narrow ground. Thankfully, that ground is less narrow in 2020 than it has been in the past, and Queen's has been a big part of both broadening that ground and broadening minds. But as we've seen in the last few days, there is still a little work uh, to do in that area. Let me also thank Professor English for hosting today's event. Uh, I'm not an alumnus of Queen's. I'm ac I actually studied at Richard's previous employer, St Andrews. So in a sense, we've both returned to Belfast to ply our trade. Uh, and I'm sure neither of us uh, will regret that move. In large part, what I want to talk uh, about today uh, are some of the major long-term structural challenges facing the local economy and offer some ideas uh, from myself and my party about how uh, 
they might be addressed. As many commentators around the world have pointed out, the COVID-19 crisis has not only created new policy challenges, it has exposed and sadly reinforced existing ones. I will discuss those, but it would be remiss not to say something first about the immediate and acute crisis facing businesses here and elsewhere as we reimpose restrictions on our daily lives for at least the next few weeks. Um, there are obviously hundreds of, uh, there are obviously thousands of businesses uh, now desperately worried about their immediate futures, particularly in the hospitality sector, but also in close contact industries and indeed, and indeed the wider supply and demand chains that touch on those businesses. And those uh, small businesses are of course uh, simply the tip of an iceberg, with most uh, shut down small micro businesses representing workers, usually on lower incomes, uh, whose incomes uh, are reduced if they are lucky, or in some cases gone entirely. This is a profoundly grave situation uh, that workers and small businesses face. And while the executive has gone some way to mitigating these consequences, it clearly has not yet gone far enough. It's clear that what we need is a more substantial economic response, some of which can come from the executive, but not all of it. This week, I called for the finance minister to be as creative and ambitious as possible in pulling every single lever open to the Northern Ireland executive, including more use of our borrowing powers and creative deployment of our uh, chronically underspent capital allocations. To be honest, if um, getting into a fight with my former employers at the Treasury is the price of having more ways to support the local economy, we should not be shy about it. Bluntly, we, need also, we also need more support from Westminster to get our people through the next few very difficult months, uh, and especially in relation to support for workers. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that we have seen some progress on that in the last hour from, uh, from Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. Uh, there has been some commentary in the past few days around the scientific evidence released by the executive on the efficacy of various individual restrictions. Some business figures have been outspoken in saying that the evidence published on Tuesday evening by the executive argued against the restrictions that were imposed. And I can certainly understand their passion and frustration on behalf of businesses here. But this is where it gets complicated. While it is clear that restrictions on specific or individual activities have a limited impact, it's also true that we need a substantial overall intervention to halt the spread of the virus in Northern Ireland, which if left unchecked, would risk overwhelming our health service. Sadly, there is no straightforward way of making such an intervention without severely curtailing large areas of economic activity. The challenge now is whether we can make a sufficient economic intervention to protect as many businesses and workers as possible, while also avoiding future cycles of lockdown and release, which will only increase the appalling level of economic scarring that our society and other societies will face. But we have to be honest. These are profoundly challenging trade-offs for governments everywhere. We are sometimes uh, want to think that Northern Ireland is uniquely dysfunctional or uniquely incapable of making the right policy decisions, and in many ways that is true. But COVID is testing politicians everywhere. By the time students arrive at the Humanities Faculty at Queen's, they hopefully will have internalised the truth that there are very few definitively right or wrong answers to complicated policy questions. Um, but this pandemic is the starkest illustration most of us will experience in our lifetimes of government, uh, governments in virtually every country facing the same hugely complex trade-offs. Of course, that doesn't mean that Stormont 
uh, is acquitting itself uh, particularly well. It just means that we are proving ourselves uh, struggling and occasionally inept in some of the same ways as governments everywhere, rather than just in our own unique ways. Uh, as I said earlier, the pandemic is both creating new and potentially deep economic scars, while also revealing existing weaknesses. We know, for example, that prevalence has tended to be greater and clinical outcomes worse in areas of higher deprivation. And in the context of Northern Ireland, that has been vividly demonstrated with the high areas, the high rates of infection in Derry and Straban. That regional inequality is one of the long-standing weaknesses that our economy faces, and I'll come on to talk a little bit more about it. But there are other uh, structural weaknesses we need to face up to and address. I will try to cover them fairly briefly, in part because I'm sure lots of people on this call uh, will know many of them off by heart already. Many of these weaknesses, as I said, are not new. Uh, the first and perhaps most fundamental challenge is our low productivity. We are consistently among the least productive UK regions, and the UK itself lags other major economies in productivity terms. Thankfully, just as I've started listing uh, the um, uh, structural problems with the Northern Ireland economy, the sun has come out just outside Stormont here, which is giving a, nicely offsetting the negativity of what I'm saying. Um, we're also significantly behind the south and east regions of the Republic of Ireland, uh, though as you might imagine, we converge a little more closely with the border counties. Uh, productivity uh, can be can seem one of those slightly desiccated economic terms that appear to reduce human existence to a kind of narrowly material measurement. The productivity, either either measured by our work or simply uh, per head of the population, is in many ways a, a better measure of how well an economy is doing uh, at improving. The, 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 is in many ways the best measure of how well an economy is doing at improving the long-term prospects of its citizens. Certainly better than a straightforward uh, GDP uh, overall GDP number. Our relatively poor productivity in Northern Ireland is, of course, closely linked to our very poor educational outcomes. And this, I'm afraid, is one of the hardest truths that large parts of our political class have seemed determined to avoid confronting. Though our selective grammar schools are brilliant at producing high uh, grades at GCSE and A-level, particularly for middle-class students, our overall attainment is bad. In Northern Ireland, the proportion of the adult population with third-level education is significantly behind both the UK and Irish averages. Uh, and we have the highest proportion of school leavers without qualifications of any UK region. And here, um, I would make a less empirical and more anecdotal point, which is that the startling failure of our political class, and indeed our discourse more broadly, uh, to, grasp the, to, to, to grasp the scale of our educational failing. That failure to grasp the problem is in many ways uh, is in many ways a product of the failure of our education system. Uh, middle class graduates, either here uh, or those who have left Northern Ireland to um, apply their trade elsewhere, have tended to look with a sort of sw swelled pride at the GCSE and A level performances of Aquinas or Methody when compared to fee paying schools in England. I did it myself at University of Scotland, marvelling at the fees that my counterparts. It's the, the parents of my counterparts had spent on um, their educations in Britain. But focusing on outcomes for a tiny sliver of mostly advantaged kids is uh, clearly a terrible way to judge any education system. But that is what we have continually done, uh, continually 
continue to do, ignoring the obvious and glaring reality of the poor outcomes for so many. Those uh, of us who oppose uh, academic selection have often fo focused on the moral dubiousness of uh, branding certain children failures at 11, and that is wrong. But it would be worth our while also pointing out that academic selection is not just a hard-headed act of, it's not some hard-headed act of tough love that leads to better outcomes in aggregate. It is proven that the kind of academic selection still fundamental uh, to Northern Ireland's system actually leads to bad educational and economic outcomes. It isn't just that it is hard on those who feel um, the transfer test. It helps contribute to the culture of relatively low human capital, which in turn reinforces our lower productivity and ultimately our tendency to attract lower uh, value-adding foreign direct investment. And while we are underperforming in terms of academic, uh, academic attainment overall, those who are achieving, and often they are overachieving, uh, as I said, are far too often simply leaving either before or after they get a degree. There is a long-standing challenge, as many people on this call will know, around uh, the Mazen cap on student numbers in Northern Ireland, on which Queen's University is right to have robust views. Um, but there are other reasons to be concerned about the pattern of movement among our young people. Uh, as someone, uh, I myself, who only recently uh, returned to live here after nearly 20 years away, it would be hypocritical of me to lambast the very idea of leaving Northern Ireland. This is, after all, a tiny place. And even if you take a benign view of our societal and political peculiarities, it's natural and healthy that young people will want to experience life elsewhere for at least a time. But the problem Northern Ireland has is that the push factors for young undergraduates or graduates who might otherwise stay in contributing and contribute to raising our human capital are simply too great. And the subsequent pull factors, uh, pull factors for them to return to Northern Ireland are, at least in economic terms, not strong enough. Uh, and that is true of me. Uh, I'm pleased to be here serving South Belfast and hopefully contributing uh, to our politics. But in the absence of um, being co-opted into the Assembly, there may simply not have been a work opportunity that made a move back to Northern Ireland a practical option for me. Again, this becomes something of a self-reinforcing problem. Certain types of foreign direct investment are harder to win because we have a lower supply of highly skilled graduates than, for example, parts of Scotland or the Republic of Ireland. None of this, by the way, is to imply that there are not hugely encouraging areas of the local economy. There are, and there are particular sectors which stand out, not least in the burgeoning cybersecurity, fintech, uh, and film production sectors. Um, and the creative industries more broadly. And of course, in a very real way, Queen's is at the center of all those success stories. But unfortunately, they don't represent all of our economy. So having spent everyone's precious lunch hour in the middle of a pandemic, listing even more reasons to be depressed, um, I will at least endeavor to offer some solutions uh, or uh, some principles for how we think about and address these challenges. Over the summer, back in uh, what now seem like gloriously halcyon days um, of partial restrictions, we as a party decided to come up with some very broad, broad principles that were designed to guide our recovery uh, from the COVID crisis, the law, our longer term recovery. Uh, the first uh, of those principles is about what I've just been discussing, and it is a new deal for young people. Uh, I'm aware that calling uh, a new deal 
calling anything a new deal for X or Y is one of the most hackneyed tropes in political communication. Um, but I think it does capture the importance of the idea. Are young people, meaning people uh, sadly a little below my age, um, all the way down to people who are still at school, are we know having the rawest of raw deals as a result of this pandemic? We knew the educational effect of successive lockdowns. We knew that much of the economic activity that has been shut down has uh, impacted on young people who disproportionately work in the hospitality uh, and independent retail sectors. And this is all happening in the context of the long-standing challenges around skills outcomes and the brain drain um, uh, that I've already discussed. Indeed, it is happening at a moment of uh, profound generational unfairness. And that's, uh, of course, internationally as well as here with young people having to face higher educational costs, greater housing costs, and enormous long-term uncertainty around the climate. Uh, our uh, executive, our institutions, can only do so much to address these challenges, but we do need to address them, it, but we do need to address them, including via, uh, as this slide says, a new skill strategy, which includes a hard look at both our further and higher education sectors, um, a uh, guaranteed training scheme for every young person. Uh, at the minute, some of you will be aware, we haven't yet got anything like the Kickstarter scheme, which um, has been introduced in England. It hasn't, nothing like that has been rolled out here yet. And, but we also need, uh, as I said, a study of the longer term causes and effects of our brain drain. And in truth, I think a, a significant cause uh, of that brain drain will turn out to be cultural, historic, as well as straightforwardly economic. As well as understanding the economic push factors away from this place, we need to understand the cultural and societal factors that continue to make too many rule out living their lives here. Uh, but the next principle I want to focus on is what we call a new connectivity for people and places. And um, one of the uh, structural challenges that I um, didn't mention earlier was around our connectivity. Uh, and this applies both inside Northern Ireland, i.e. between our uh, the different regions inside Northern Ireland and uh, across our major markets uh, in these islands, both uh, in the rest of Ireland and the rest of the UK. Uh, put at its simplest, too many of our people have been too poorly connected to economic opportunity for too long. So we need first to invest in key infrastructure inside Northern Ireland, and here I will get in the obligatory plug for my party colleague, Nicola Mallon, and, but we also need a long overdue step change in how we achieve all-island infrastructure. And many of you will have heard um, the Taoiseach's speech this morning, and I'm grateful uh, to him for it, uh, for, as I said, acting as a, as a warm-up act for me. He was able to make some slightly more substantive uh, spending announcements. That is the privilege you get when you actually um, are in office. And it's great that we're seeing um, hard financial commitments to both increased cross-border infrastructure spending in general, but also a feasibility study of high-speed rail uh, linkages between Derry, Belfast, uh, Dublin, Limerick, and Cork. But connectivity also means new opportunities for people at home uh, and remote working, uh, which could have the principle of having more people with higher value jobs and therefore greater disposable incomes living in communities which have traditionally been uh, poorly connected and net exporters of people. And we think particularly about places like Darien Straban, for example, which um, this week was uh, named as a um, one of the a leading place uh, in these islands to uh, be able to work from home, in part because of the low cost of living there. Um, and that brings me to um, 
uh, my next uh, principle, which is really a new uh, localism uh, to drive greater sustainability in um, more sustainable local economies and more sustainable lives. And this is something um, which uh, the COVID experience has really uh, uncovered as an opportunity that will involve a range of things, improving regional balance, including by um, take a slightly different approach uh, to how it uh, sources um, investment opportunities uh, for Northern Ireland and how it grows investment in communities outside Belfast. Uh, but also it will involve figuring out whether our, um, uh, as we look at how our high streets sustain themselves in communities, towns and villages across Northern Ireland, whether our continued reliance on non-domestic rates as our primary local revenue raiser is viable. And that brings me to uh, our final principle, um, uh, which is that of new powers for Northern Ireland. Um, for those of you who weren't watching all of the Assembly's debates on the supply estimates this week, and I accept that may uh, have been a few of you, uh, I spent quite a lot of my time talking about the need for our finance minister to be as creative and ambitious as possible in using our extremely uh, curtailed borrowing and fiscal powers to ensure short-term support for our economy through the COVID crisis. Well, that speaks to a bigger need, which is that we need to take more responsibility for how we raise revenue uh, and, uh, and ensure we have more capacity to borrow excuse me, in order to fund priorities that we deem to be of strategic long-term value. This is not, in a sense, a new um, argument or a new claim on behalf of Northern Ireland, but it's one uh, whose necessity, I think, has been underlined by the COVID crisis. Our entire response to um, COVID and the subsequent economic crisis has been uh, dictated by the pace and nature and in of intervention in England. Uh, and while Barnett consequential cash is always welcome during a crisis, it is true that the repeated failures of Whitehall to deliver on promises for guaranteed multi-year funding, and this week we've seen it again because the spending review we found out will only be for one year, helps to perpetuate a failure in long-term strategic policymaking and capital investment in Northern Ireland. In short, it provides our politicians with an excuse to continue being short-termist and tactical. So those are four broad principles. Uh, a new deal for young people, a new connectivity, a new localism, and new powers for Northern Ireland. Uh, as you will have seen, this is not a comprehensive manifesto. It's a, set, it's a set of thematic principles that are designed to respond to some of the long-standing structural challenges in our economy. Uh, but having mentioned uh, COVID and talked about that at some length, it would be remiss of me before I finish not to mention the other immense and looming economic dislocation we are finishing. And that is, of course, Brexit. Um, uh, those of you in this call uh, who know how much of my life has been professional and personal has been about Brexit over the past few years um, will regard it as an achievement that I've got through nearly 20, 20 minutes of speaking uh, without talking about Brexit. Um, the problem is, in a sense, there's far too much to say. Uh, but by far uh, the most important and urgent thing to say is that it is uh, impossible to overstate how uh, urgent it is for Northern Ireland uh, more than anywhere else in the UK or Ireland that there is a trade deal between the UK and EU. The truth is that even before the referendum in 2016, Northern Ireland was a hinge point 
in the relationship between the UK and the EU, even if much of the political class in London had failed to realise it, uh, they certainly do now. Uh, the best way to make the protections contained in the Northern Ireland Ireland Protocol both robust and practical is for them to be fully implemented in the context of a constructive and close UK-EU partnership. That holds out the prospect of a scenario in which Northern Ireland's hinge point status works to the advantage of our economy and our people with preferential access to both British and European markets. And I should say, as a, as a, as a comment, that preferential access to both markets would in a sense um, shadow the dual nature of, um, of our political settlement and, uh, and our society um, and, uh, and what's wrong with that. Uh, but all that depends on Boris Johnson and his government uh, dropping the uh, pantomime of recent weeks and concluding a deal in the next month uh, and then doing everything in their power to prepare businesses here for the change that is coming. And at the end of, at the end of this year will, for uh, better and worse, mean change and disjunction for everyone across these islands. I should say it will mostly be worse as someone who remains to the view that Brexit is a, um, a, a very bad thing for everybody um, uh, on both islands. Uh, Brexit is a fundamental and seismic act whose long-term consequences uh, are still unknowable, even if many of the short-term consequences were predictable. And that really is uh, one of my key final points. Um, that's about the necessity of getting on with the hard work of changing the economy here in Northern Ireland for the common good, even as change takes place around us. Uh, many of the certainties that we have relied upon in the past two to three decades are changing. Northern Ireland is having to operate in a context uh, that we haven't done in the post-Good Friday era, where old certainties are vanishing, most notably and tragically the stability of the British-Irish bilateral relationship, but also, it has to be said, the stability of the UK state itself. That makes it all the more important that, without setting aside our constitutional aspirations, we set and agree clear goals for delivering on the common good for everyone here. And believe it or not, I think we can do just that. Um, and with that, Richard, um, I will conclude my remarks and hopefully take some questions without breaking down uh, technically. Matthew, thank you very much indeed for that. It was very, very fascinating and insightful and it has already prompted a number of questions. So um, what I'm going to do is remind the audience that they can post questions please in the question and answer some people have already done that and i'm about to begin uh giving matthew a chance to answer those but if there are other questions people want to post do please take this opportunity of engaging with matthew o'toole so matthew the first question is from john barry and it's this what is matthew's view of building back better from the pandemic and promoting a low carbon economic recovery with a focus on jobs, not on orthodox economic growth. What's your view of building back better from the pandemic, promoting a low carbon economic recovery with a focus on jobs, not on orthodox economic growth? Um, well, without sounding too asinine, I, um, I, I think it's critical. Um, I would say a couple of things. Um, first, John makes the comment that um, focusing on orthodox economic growth is a poor measure of um, how a society, uh, indeed an economy, is doing, I agree entirely. I, I think it's, it's worth saying that in my remarks, I specifically talked about, um, uh, about productivity per head, and I think there's an important point there. Um, at an individual uh, level, 
our society becoming more productive, our economy becoming more productive can still be a good thing without a narrow focus on uh, on economic growth as a, as a sole driver. It's, uh, productivity will tends to mean that our people are becoming more skilled, better educated, uh, and better connected to, to economic opportunity. But John's right, that doesn't mean that we should be prioritizing uh, narrowly defined growth in GDP terms. Um, specifically in relation to build back better, there are a number of macro and micro things we need to do. Um, I think, uh, first of all, um, Part of the four principles that we talked about, the one that was about more sustainable living, more sustainable uh, communities, I mean, in a sense, these are all uh, linked together. I think one of the things that COVID has revealed is um, our, um, uh, that the, the limitations to home working, uh, as it were, but also the opportunities and benefits of having home working be a greater part of our, um, of our working lives. That also means that um, we can revitalize the communities in which we live, but in order to do that, um, part of that I think is reframing how they operate from, for example, a transport perspective. We want to ensure that um, you know we take the opportunity, having got more cars off the road for a few months. I think I'd like to think lots of people in Belfast saw the 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 paucity of cars on the road as a positive. It would be great if we were able to keep more cars off the road once we're able to get more people safely back onto public transport. So um, I think it's important that we reframe our entire transport policy around um, building back better is yes, the phrase, but more green active travel, uh, prioritizing um, investment in our uh, in our rail and bus infrastructure. Now, I would say, wouldn't I, Nicola Mallon is doing that, but also um, reframing our um, urban spaces, our cityscapes, um, to ensure that they prioritize you know, much more sustainable uh, living. You know, there was a campaign in my constituency this summer which met a little resistance uh, around opening up the Ormer Road at the weekends and closing it off to traffic. I and my party were very supportive of it. There were some, as it were, teething issues around, um, around delivering on it, but um, it, what it shows is the level and strength, I think, of community and society feeling around this. Um, so that's so that in a sense that's at a micro level. At a macro level, I mean, I think um, uh, it's extraordinarily important that we, uh, frankly, as a as a political class in Northern Ireland, do much more to uh, do our bit uh, as relates to the the climate emergency. We've had several motions in the Northern Ireland Assembly, but they've just been motions. They've been declarative statements of intent. We now need to move to actually passing. Um, a comprehensive climate change bill. There was a first step on that yesterday with Claire Bailey leading the way with other parties, including my own, submitting a draft bill. Um, I'm not sure if it will make it to the statute book as it is, but we'll be forcing it hard, and I really hope it does. So um, I think there's, a, there's micro and macro work to be done, but on the positive side, there is clearly a, a, a majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly now um, basically, it's everyone but the DUP, uh, frankly, Jim Alistair, who are keen to see a climate change act. So um, that's one micro thing that we could, that's one macro thing that we can do. And actually, it links back to one of the points I was making in my remarks, which is about uh, reassuring young people that this is a place they want to live in. They want to see something done about the climate emergency. So that's a, a slightly sprawling answer. Thanks very much indeed, Matthew. Thank you. The next question we have is from Maureen O'Reilly, and it picks up on something you've alluded to there. She says, what's your view on the skills mismatch? The universities, Maureen says, 
talk about the need for more graduate places, but there's underemployment of many graduates here. The cost to those students is significant uh, and they're unlikely to see any return on investment. How do the universities ensure a greater match between supply and demand? So the question here is about the skills mismatch, um, about the match between supply and demand in terms of graduates and their skills. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's definitely true, and and and, and, it's, a, and it's a very good question. I, 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 I'll give a, a frank answer. I I don't have a I don't have a perfect solution to it in in the medium term. But one of the things we talked about in our principles is the need to have a skill strategy, like a proper robust skill strategy, which looks honestly at our both higher and further education provision and our. Um, uh, you know, and our and, and our long-term strategic economic planning more generally. Maury is right that we have both a problem uh, that we have um, we have underemployed, as it were, graduates here. Uh, that is obviously connected to the challenge we have of tending to export too many of our graduates to either um, uh, other parts of the UK, the Republic, further afield. Um, I, I think um, you know I wouldn't want to get into the I, I wouldn't want to. Get into a world in which we were kind of saying that um, uh, you know we have we have, we simply have too many graduates here, and, and no more. isn't saying that the problem is we don't have enough our economic we don't have enough economic opportunity for the graduates that are here. So I think uh, there is a um, really multi pronged uh, effort needed at um, yes, increasing our skills base and our human capital, but ensuring that um, both via FDI but also through kind of um, you know, indigenous economic activity that we are providing uh, the opportunity for people here. And um, so that also means that if we get into reforming Mazen, increasing um, you know, increasing the number of university places here, which I am certainly in principle in favour of, that it needs to be done in a way which is sequenced and carefully matched to an economic plan rather than just, um, uh, you, know, you know, rather than just creating the spaces before, in a sense, our economy has the capacity to to um, to incorporate them and to, to give them the opportunity that they want, because we could end up simply um, exporting more of them. Um, uh, it's, so it's not a question that I have a, that I want to give a glib answer to, but it's um, it's touched on something really important. Thanks for that, Matthew. Thank you very much. Related again to education, the next question is from Peter Sheridan who says, we've recognised for years that we need major reform to deal with inbuilt educational disadvantage if we don't change the economy is likely to continue to be seriously underperforming for decades to come. So his question is, do you believe, Matthew, that we have the will or the capacity at the executive to make these urgent changes in terms of dealing with inbuilt educational disadvantage? Um, it's a good question. Uh, there is a, a study going on now into educational disadvantage that the education minister has um, uh, commissioned. I think there is a sincere, um, you know, I think there is a sincere desire among all parties to address educational um, disadvantage. There are differences in emphasis. There are specific views about where disadvantage ex exists and whether there, you know, there, there are clearly particular issues with Protestant boys in, in certain um, in controlled secondary schools and the outcomes there. There are historical issues in in in, um, in in other parts of the of the sector, so there is recognition that there that there are severe educational inequalities. But um, where I'm more sceptical, frankly, and more um, pessimistic is around um, an acceptance of what will be needed to address some of those. Um, for me, you know, 
I mean, um, bluntly being much more ambitious in terms of um, uh, removing selection and, um, and and reorienting our education system away from that is um, is something that I'm not sure the political consensus exists for yet at executive level. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue making the argument. Um, and we have basically overwhelming evidence in favour of it. There is. You know, there is no one anymore who can plausibly make the argument that selection, as, it, as we currently have it, slightly but not particularly deeply reformed since 1947 in terms of how we um, we uh, we select kids at 11 is leads to either good overall educational outcomes or good economic outcomes. So, um, unfortunately, in the short term, I'm not particularly optimistic that we'll get that change, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep beating the drum and making the arguments. Thanks very much indeed, Matthew. There's a series of questions have come in around the brain drain. Um, Mairead McCormick saying further comments and insights on that, please. And two specific questions, one from Alan Barrett uh, and one from a former student of mine, Rohan Naik. Um, Alan's question is, you suggest it might be difficult to get people back in the absence of economic progress, uh, but is there a policy lever to yeah. attract people back to Northern Ireland, such as tax breaks? That's from Alan Barrett about tax breaks. And Rohan asks, do you have any thoughts as to how to attract highly skilled immigrants, say from Eastern Europe and Asia, to work in Northern Ireland's growing finance and tech sector? Is there a plan for this? So on the brain drain, first of all, tax breaks to get people back. And secondly, something around getting people to work in the tech sector. What do you think of those questions, Matthew? Um, they're both really good ones and really fascinating ones. Um, I think uh, first uh, to take the second one first around the tech sector. And um, the, the general point is uh, around you know um, it, it's one that I didn't touch on in my remarks, but I uh, was thinking of touching on. I just I, I had a lot of words in there, a lot of things to cover. Um, it's really about us being an attractive place for inward migration, and in a strange way, that has been a very small part of the economic and policy debate in Northern Ireland uh, really for decades. Um, obviously, there's been a broader UK debate about uh, immigration policy, most of it unfortunately fairly toxic in the last few years. But in, in Northern Ireland specifically, we've had a relatively limited debate about uh, getting people in here. But it should be right at the heart of how we think about um, uh, how we think about economic opportunity in the society we want to build in the future. It, and actually, in no small part, because I think one of the ways in which we progress our society and heal some of the peculiarities, divisions and problems that really frustrate the people who tend to leave the place and are dubious about coming back is around um, uh, attracting people here and, and making it a place that people from around the world want to come to and work. And the first challenge is uh, convincing Whitehall that there should be um, much greater devolution of uh, immigration um, uh, of immigration powers, basically not necessarily immigration powers, in that you want the Northern Ireland should create its own subsidiary um, uh, border force. Um, I think that would be uh, that would be quite an ambitious ask for a variety of reasons. But that we are that there are differential um, uh, needs and differential um, approaches to uh, immigration in different parts of the UK. That's certainly the Scottish, something the Scottish government have pushed hard for and, and it's something that we should be pushing hard for too in the short term because um, changing the, the, the change in rules the UK government want to 
enforced is going to have a very detrimental impact on certain sectors of our um, economy. But to move on to the the specific question, which was about um, attracting people to work in the tech sector, I think there is a job of selling this place and there is a job of um, advertising the benefits of of living here, not just investing here. I think we've got into the habit for too long, I think, of thinking of ourselves as... um, uh, of thinking of ourselves as a special case, and that the that that we want um, we want the world to to uh, the world to look at us and help us uh, in particular ways, whether that's through um, political counsel or or inward investment. And, and actually, you know, we probably need to reorient ourselves towards um, uh, attracting people to work and live here, which will probably mean uh, diluting some of our um, our, our hang-ups. So. Um, uh, so there's that. Then the second point, um, uh, Alan's question about tax breaks. Well, look, I mean, um, I, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't think I'd make any particular uh, pledge on supporting tax breaks at an individual level. But certainly, um, you know, we have, as I said in my remarks, basically um, very, very limited fiscal levers at our disposal here. So that you know, it would be interesting, uh, something to look at as a potential policy lever. Um, you know, we, we have no power at the minute over um, personal income tax in Northern Ireland. Um, I support a fiscal commission to look at the full range of um, uh, potential fiscal powers. And why not? Let's look at it. Let, let's discuss it. You know, I'm a, I'm a good social democrat, so I don't automatically o- always believe in the narrow power of tax breaks as a, um, as a as the only economic intervention you can make. But certainly, let's look at it as a as a potential um, as a potential policy lever. Thanks, Matthew. Um, you mentioned in your remarks uh, the Taoiseach's shared island speech this morning, uh, and there's a question from Andrew McAnallen specifically about one aspect of that. Uh, Andrew says, have you any comments on the commitment the Taoiseach made today which gives students in the north access to EU programmes such as Erasmus post-Brexit? Will this help the brain drain? That's from Andrew. Yes, and this is, um, I'm absolutely delighted that the um, Irish government have confirmed that today. In fact, um, I and colleagues in my team uh, have been looking at this. Karen Derry, who are on the skull, have been working hard thinking about this. This is something um, uh, we've been asking questions about is the guaranteed status for uh, Erasmus Plus for um, students in Northern Ireland, uh, by the way, whether they are. Uh, hopefully, whether they are, um, uh, you know, carry an Irish passport or a British one, um, but also participation of um, uh, northern institutions. That's obviously hugely important to Queens and you, you too. Um, but more broadly, I think it is completely critical to how we think about this place. Look, you, know, uh, Andrew's question is, you know, is about Erasmus. Erasmus is that's effectively protecting something that we've had for decades. Um, one of the reasons why Brexit, and I will get slightly spiky here, one of the reasons why Brexit is an appalling visitation upon young people everywhere, but not just in, in, in Northern Ireland, but why it's a, an appalling thing to inflict on young people who've already, um, as I said, suffer, you know, are already experiencing significant generational inequality, is the impoverishment of opportunities like Erasmus. It's completely fundamental that people, particularly in Northern Ireland, where, let's face it, one of the challenges has been the sense that uh, our horizons have been too low. That the you know that, it, it, that the society has been too obsessed with um, uh, you know how do I put it diplomatically certain um, 
you know, with our past at times, people, and that has been a, that's been a, that's been a challenge for, for our young people and for exciting them about staying here and building their future here. And Brexit was a whole, has threatened to remove a whole sort of raft of uh, opportunities and a whole set of horizons. So if Erasmus can be protected, that's great. But going forward, we also need to look at the, um, and what other opportunities we can maximize from the protocol. We need to, I didn't talk about it uh, very much in my remarks, um, but I talked about it elsewhere. We need to be, um, you know, really um, on the Irish government and the European Commission and uh, everyone we absolutely need to be to ensure that the protocol is interpreted in a way that maximizes opportunity for our economy writ large, but particularly for our young people. Um, uh, and there are loads of it. So the, the, the Erasmus Plus announcement today was a great part of that. It was, a, you know, it was a positive sign of moving in that direction, but there's lots, lots more to be done. Thanks very much, Matthew. Um, lots of questions coming in now. Um, Lisa, Clare, <clears throat> Lisa Clare says, thanks for your time and insight and asks you to speak a bit more in detail about the need to devolve more powers to Northern Ireland. Lisa Clare says, you mentioned revenue raising. Are there any other areas you think should or could be devolved? And if yes, would these be from currently reserved powers under the 1998 Northern Ireland Act? So, more powers devolved to Northern Ireland. Uh, well, um, certainly more powers devolved to Northern Ireland. I think that you know my primary initial focus has, in truth, been about um, uh, fiscal powers because I think um, one of the things I've sort of understood, well, one of the things I've learned in my nine months now in um, Stormont is the extent to which because of the nature of our executive, the nature of the way it works, um, and particularly in the absence of a program for government, the budget and um, the, the, the financial process ends up being a de facto strategic policy device for our institutions. That means that fiscal powers, um, so, that, that, so from that flows this point that if you increase, uh, I think, our fiscal powers, you also, you therefore, yeah, I think you, then, you therefore experience a, a kind of transformational step change in our, hopefully our self-confidence and our sense that we can make change here more generally. So yes, other powers should flow from that. And that could include, for example, um, more autonomy over um, uh, over migration, for example. I think that is really important that we have differential migration rules for this place um, and a whole range of areas where we need to be doing much, much, much more on a north-south basis. But I think it's really critical that we get um, uh, that we get a proper look at how we enhance our fiscal powers here. You know, I'm all for criticizing the um, some of the culture that has built up that has built up in Stormont over the past decade, um, uh, particularly around the two main parties who run things. It make no bones. My party makes no bones about um, being honest about some of those issues. But at the same time, there are also structural challenges uh, to do with um, the way our budgeting comes through from Westminster. That frankly doesn't um, it doesn't lend itself to us being as um, mature and proactive, a devolved, uh, a devolved institution uh, as we could be, um, you know. And I think the COVID crisis has underlined that we've most of our interventions have come um, after we've uh, got the money from Westminster. Now, don't get me wrong; that's not a, a kind of a nationalist complaint about taking money from Westminster. That's we pay our taxes, and that's the way. Then's the rules, and and we need the money, particularly during a crisis. But it has meant that there's been a tendency for our policy interventions to kind of wait until uh, Whitehall tells us what it's doing and what the Barnett consequential is from what the intervention in England is. That clearly isn't always 
going to lead to the best and most coherent policy for Northern Ireland. So um, I think the first and most important thing in this process is establishing what the right fiscal powers are. Yes, in terms of revenue raising, um, uh, uh, but also uh, you know the but also in terms of borrowing. Thank you. Here's a question about the civil service. It's Martin Craigs, and Martin says excellent analysis and pragmatic thematic principles. So he's enjoyed what you have to say. And his question is: Can Northern Ireland face the reality that the civil service has to shrink? to allow the private sector to be unburdened from bureaucracy and risk-averse culture to become more productive. He says equitable economic growth should then be a given, not an unfunded entitlement. So the civil service needing to shrink? Well, uh, I think um, I think it is... So I, I, I'm cautious about making a narrow s- statement on the basis of, of that... Um, that the civil service needs to shrink um, in the in the short term, and that the civil service shrinking will be a um, a magic um, spur to private sector growth. I think, particularly in the you know in the current environment, when we have for obvious reasons private sector demand, uh, you know that, that consumption bit of the economy is um, is, uh, is is necessarily constrained. I, I'd be cautious, but but there is a, a very good point there, which is that. In relative terms, our private sector is um, is too small. Look, I am a I'm a social democrat. I'm on the centre left. I believe in a robust uh, interventionist state, but it's clear that the way are um, uh, that, that the private sector in Northern Ireland is too small, and it hasn't fostered a healthy relationship with um, you know healthy uh, economic outcomes for our um, society. I would say though that one of the first and most important things. For me, about the civil service here is uh, perhaps less that um, it sort of shrinks in the short term, and more that it um, that we improve the capacity of the civil service. Like we all know that the you know the RHI debacle and then the institutions being in advance for three years was a like a fundamental shock to um, to people's confidence. Uh, that has not recovered yet. Um, it hasn't recovered externally, but it's also done real damage to the internal morale of the Northern Ireland civil service. So both of those things need to be worked on and need to be repaired. Um, we need to have confidence that the civil service writ large, but also the leadership of the civil service, frankly, has the capacity to make the necessary uh, reforms and improvements to do government in this place. We, but we also need um, to ensure that there is a, a decent level of morale for people who, are, you know, there are thousands of very hard workers, civil servants who deliver great service for people in what is, let's face it, still a difficult and unique um, jurisdiction. Thanks very much, Matthew. We've got time just for one more question, and this one relates again to aspects of the practicalities of local governance. This is a question from Chris McCracken. And Chris says, the fragmented nature of local governance obstructs effective decision-making. There are too many government master plans sitting on shelves, gathering dust, Chris suggests. So the question from Chris is, what is your view on introducing a regeneration authority for Belfast with the aim of bringing regeneration, transport and planning powers together and helping to attract hundreds of millions of external capital investments? So Chris's question is about a regeneration authority for Belfast to get rid of the fragmented nature of local governance. I'm, I'm, I'm not like I would be. It's a good question. I think there is. I think a strong arguments for a hard look at the way um, uh, we do regional economic governance. I think there are. It, you know, it's sort of 
we, we need to see the like how well the potential of the Belfast city deal and is delivered. That's happened. You know, clearly there's lots of potential, but there's also lots of slight incoherence around the way it's been organised. In, in in truth, um, you know, with sort of other um, adjacent bits being kind of um, benefiting from the the city deal, but in a less perhaps coherently organised way than 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 we might um, than we might like. I think there is a there is a uh, in general a robust point that Chris is making, which is that at times there's an, an incoherence about the way our governance works um, for a variety of historical um, and administrative reasons. Obviously, we had a five or six years ago a reorganization of local government, some of which was perhaps, um, some clearly it's delivered positive things, but perhaps in other ways it wasn't optimally designed. Um, so I, I think the answer is um, a guarded, let's look at it, we, but we definitely do need to improve how we do um, uh, how we do regional, uh, how we do regional economic uh, planning better. It's also worth just saying that you know there's a there's a huge cross border story here that's that's really important. So for example, um, the um, lots of these structures already exist in the northwest, but but don't have enough power. They don't have enough um, authority to really make the kind of um, serious decisions that they need to make. To for example. Um, Properly join up uh, and uh, and embolden the 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 economic the the, the long-standing economic unit that is the Derry Donegal region. You know, um, it was the even the the um, even the the the, the Prosperity UK, the Alternative Arrangements Commission, the people who were visiting the Irish border in order to say why uh, they, we didn't need a backstop and how technical solutions could work, grandly announced in their report that the Derry Donegal region was a coherent um, economic uh, unit uh, uh, and needed to be treated as such, which was a, quite an interesting uh, finding for that particular group of people to make. So I suppose that, that's a long-winded way of saying Chris is right that we do need better, um, uh, we need better, more powerful. Um, uh, governance around economic development at a regional level and not particularly wedded to exactly what the structures are, if you see what I mean. I do, and thank you very much. Matthew, you can tell from the number of questions that have been asked how much interest there's been from the audience and the wider public in your arguments, and apologies to those people who've not had a chance to get their questions answered on this occasion. Um, thank you to the audience uh, for participating in what's been a great discussion. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Thank you to my public engagement colleagues at Queen's for setting up what's been a tremendous discussion. Um, but in particular, uh, for a wonderful talk, for setting out some really important ideas about really major challenges facing us all, and for a wonderful engagement with questions, um, I'd like, albeit virtually, uh, to thank our speaker today. It's been wonderful having you at Queen's. Look forward to having you back again, uh, whether by Zoom or eventually in person once the pandemic abates. Uh, but thank you very Hopefully. much for a wonderful session to Matthew O'Toole. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Richard. Thanks very much. It's been, uh, been really fun. For more in this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast's Shaping a Better World podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.